Well, good morning, Trailer Church. We're so glad you could join us this morning. We're going to be in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. If you're using our Bibles, you'll find that on page 2. Again, Genesis, chapter 3. If you're using our Bibles, page 2. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden... He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning, y'all. Merry Christmas. That's good to see you. Thanks for uh, joining us this morning. Uh, before we jump in, I want to give you an update. Uh, last week, we took our First Roots offering for our Flourish Capital campaign, and, uh, and I'd love just to update you on some numbers. Um, Go ahead and put that up there so that they can see it. There we go. Um, so as of this week, we have 87 givers that are involved 
120 is our overall goal. We're going to continue moving forward, but that represents 16 more givers since uh, we took our commitment Sunday, uh, which is a huge win. Uh, we are currently at uh, 820,640 pledged, uh, which is about 100,000 more than... Um, I know that awesome. Then we were at um, when we took our first fruits. So we are continuing to push forward toward our 1.1 million uh, goal. And and this last number uh, kind of shocked me. This is uh, by far the the largest single offering we've ever taken. Um, our first fruits campaign we brought in uh, eighty three thousand seventy seven dollars. Uh, as the first fruits toward our capital campaign. And what that means is we're going to take 10% off the top to set that apart for, um, uh, for our intentional giving with that. And then the rest of that is going to go straight to pay off uh, a chunk of our mortgage. And um, I tried to do some fancy math to find out how much interest that saves us over the course of a 30-year loan. And, uh, and I'm not good at math. So I can't give you that number. <laughs> I can't. I came up with some numbers and I'm like, these are completely fictitious. It would be fraudulent to share this information. So I did not share that information, but we just saved a chunk of money. I mean, that's the bottom line. Um, and, and you guys, it's your generosity that's equipping us to do that. I am so excited about what God is doing in us uh, and what he is going to do through us as we continue to partner together over the next three years uh, to, to pay this loan forward so that other churches can be equipped uh, to pursue uh, uh, the call of the gospel ministry in their communities and, um, and we can be freed up. Uh, to respond to God's leading uh, as he leads. So thank you again to all of you who pledged and contributed. Uh, I want to throw the invitation out there. If you haven't yet pledged, if you haven't yet jumped in over the next three years, I'm going to be giving some, some regular updates just to let you know how much we're collecting and how many new people are involved. And, and you can jump in at any time. These booklets are at Connection Point. Uh, if you want to find out what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we plan to get there, all the information is here. There's a pledge card right on the front, so you can fill that out and drop it in any time. And, uh, and you will be uh, partnering with us uh, to seek to be obedient to God and to grow in generosity. Uh, so that we can be a blessing and can experience more of God's blessing to us. Uh, in addition, I want to remind you that we have a Christmas, de- a Christmas Eve service coming up. Obviously, this is our Christmas weekend. Merry Christmas. It's coming up this week. Uh, you have two shopping days left till Christmas. So guys, it's time. Men in the room, uh, it's time. Yeah, uh, or tomorrow. Um, and so... It's time. Uh, so Tuesday night, I invite you to join us 5 p.m. as, uh, as we gather um, to culminate the Advent season. That's really what our Christmas Eve service is. It's our way of, of bringing our Advent season to a close. There is a difference between the Advent season and the Christmas season. Uh, the Advent season is a season of longing and waiting. Advent is a word that means coming. And, and it's our time to join the people of God in longing for the coming of our Savior. And of course, if we go back in history, there was a, a long period of time in which they were longing for the coming of the Messiah. Uh, we get the great opportunity of looking back to the coming of the Messiah, but it fills us with longing for the coming of our King, right? That, that our Messiah came and He will return as our King, that we live between these two Advents, these two comings. And, uh, and so um, the season of Advent is our time to stir our affections, 
to awaken within us our longings for the coming of our King, the establishment of His kingdom, for the fulfillment of the promises. We have received the blessings, but we're waiting for them to be realized. And we live in this gap between the good news that came and the fulfillment of the promises that will come. And so on Christmas Eve, we'll be singing, reading, focusing our hearts on Christ and, um, and seeking to awake within us this holy longing, this, this, this yearning um, for the coming of Christ. So join us uh, Tuesday evening at 5 p.m. We've been sitting in Genesis chapter 3 over the last month through the Advent season uh, to help prepare our hearts to, to enter into the longing of this season, right? Because we don't just look back to the first coming of Christ, we look all the way back to the reason He had to come, right? That's what Genesis 3 is about. Genesis 3 is the chapter in which everything went wrong, that Christ came to set right. Genesis 3 defines the problem that we needed God to fix. Genesis 3 explains why the world is the way it is and awakens within us our longing for God to set the world back to the way it should be. So in Genesis chapter 3, we've been looking specifically at the loss of Shalom. Our first parents rebelled against God. Uh, instead of being content with being created in the image of God, they wanted to be like God. So instead of living in humble dependence on God, they wanted to compete with God. They wanted to define the boundaries of their own glory. They wanted to establish their own security. They, they wanted to pursue pleasure on their own terms, in their own ways. They, they wanted to be like God. And instead of living in humble dependence on God, rebelled against God and committed cosmic treason. And in committing cosmic treason, they set off a bomb, a bomb of sin, uh, whose shockwaves are continuing to be felt till today. It was the loss of shalom. Shalom, of course, is that Hebrew word, that rich, rich Hebrew word that doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. It means the presence of the fullness and the flourishing of life. God created uh, the universe to exist in this state of shalom where where every individual piece of that creation made its own individual note, but all of those notes worked together in a glorious harmony, a glorious hum that created a beautiful orchestrated music. And, and Adam and Eve, humanity was created to lead that orchestra. We were created to be the stewards of all creation. We were created to be the vice regents of God, those that would rule those created in God's image, ruling in the power and in the presence of God to His glory and to our good. And, and when, we, when we broke shalom with God, we broke the shalom of the entire created order. And we've looked over the last three weeks, right? We saw how we, we lost our shalom with God, which means we lost our spiritual peace. We, we lost our ability to come into the presence of God, to have our deepest needs met, our deepest needs for significance and security, um, for, for uh, pleasure, um, for rest, right? Those deep needs still drive us, but we can no longer come to the God who satisfies those needs or those appetites. So, so we turn to the things God created instead of the God who created them. We're continually chasing things that can't meet our deepest needs, right? We look to our jobs, look to our families, look to our success, look to our Facebook feed, look, look to, to all of these things and ask them to do for us what only God can do and be for us what only God can be, which is why we are a humanity filled with discontent and greed, and violence, and anger, and shame, and fear. Because of this one root cause, all the other problems come. Because we've lost shalom with God, because we can no longer come into the presence of the God who created us and feast on the goodness of that God. We are driven by our desires 
to have those appetites fed in ways that, that, that don't satisfy. And as a result, we are driven in discontent. And that, that leads us, the, the first shockwave that came out of that was the loss of shalom with ourselves, right, which is personal. So it went from, from our spiritual relationship with God to our personal relationship with ourselves. Because we lost shalom with God, um, we now have to hide. We now have to, to, to pr- pretend and perform. We need to create a false self that people can see, that we can hide behind because we desperately don't want to see uh, the own, the, our own depravity of our own souls. We don't want to see our brokenness. We don't want to see all the ways that we not only fall short of the law of God, we fall short of our own expectations. And in that moment was born shame. And in that moment was born fear. And in that moment was born anger. And those three drives afflict us all. Shame, a need to hide. Fear, a need to build a bulwark of protection. Anger, an outrage that life is not the way it's supposed to be. We all experience it. Loss of shalom with ourselves. Which, of course, since we've lost shalom with God, lost shalom with ourselves, we bring that into every relationship, which means we've lost shalom in community. We no longer live in community with others, we live in competition with others. Since the world is a a place of limited resources where I have to keep what I have and get more, right? I have to to be driven to to provide for my own security, establish my own significance, uh, 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 attain my own pleasure. That means that you now are a threat to me because what you take, I no longer have. And as a result, I live in conflict with you instead of community with you. I no longer live in a, in a loving generosity. I'm constantly evaluating, how do you enrich me? How do you benefit me? How do you help me? And if you take more than you give, more than likely, you're no longer going to stay in my inner circle. You may not even stay in my outer circle, right? Because, because we are now continually driven, not by the outward push of love, but by the inward pull of greed. And if you don't match my story, if you don't meet my needs, you now compete with me instead of contribute to me. So we see a loss of shalom in interpersonal relationships. And that leads us to this final impact this morning, which we see when, when God is speaking to Adam about the consequences that, that um, this sin will have in his relationship to the rest of the created order. Uh, so we, we've seen that it's a spiritual impact, personal, interpersonal, and now we're going to see it's vocational. We were created to be the stewards of all creation. That was our primary responsibility and job on, on, on earth, right? You, you might be an artist, you might be an engineer, um, you, you might be a carpenter, you, you, might be, you might be all kinds of things, but your primary vocation is to image God, right? To, 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 to create like God created, to manage like God managed, to take this gift of culture, protect it, and build more of it. Our primary vocation was to be stewards of the entire created order by imaging God to it. And now we see the loss of shalom in our relationship to that job description, in our relationship to the rest of creation. Take a look at chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, because I want to highlight this. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat your bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. 
For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I want to highlight that, that central, the ground is cursed because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it will bring forth to you. Creation was designed by God to respond joyfully to the hand of the steward. Right? Like a, like a conductor. <laughs> when I set the tempo, creation was meant to respond. When I, when I move in creative efforts, when, when, when I design something beautiful, when I envision something that's never existed, all of creation was designed to respond joyfully to the hand of the steward. The glorious hum never disrupted, right? Simply adding to the orchestra, building out the beauty. And what God is saying is that now, because you've lost shalom with me, you've lost shalom with the rest of creation. And as a result, the land will no longer yield joyfully to your hand. The, the orchestra will no longer respond uh, immediately and eagerly and joyfully to, to your direction. Now, now, you, you will eat your bread with pain. You will sow a good crop, but you will reap thorns and thistles. Uh, obviously, I think God is speaking about a whole lot more than agriculture here. In the same way that when he was talking to Eve, he wasn't just talking about motherhood. He was talking about the nature of human relationships. Here he is talking about our relationship with, with all of creation, the loss of shalom between us and the rest of the created order. In this moment was born every form of disorder that exists between us and the rest of creation. Earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, cancer. They were all born right here. All the pathologies, all the disorders, all the brokenness. But there was something else that was born here than simply the disruption. Now, now nature is, is no longer a, a joyful friend. It is an adversary. It is something to be conquered and subdued as opposed to enjoyed and explored but something else was born here, something deeper and, and honestly more deformed and more dangerous. There was in this moment the birth of worldliness. Worldliness. Uh, the Greek word from which we get our English word worldliness, um, cosmos, um, it's not talking about the physical terrain underneath our feet. The word cosmos means the ordered system of the universe. And so when we read about worldliness in Scripture, it's not talking about things that are of the earth, though that is implied. It's talking more about the systems we create to do life on this earth, the ordered systems that we create, the culture we create, the way we determine corporately and together to do life. Because we've lost shalom with God... And we now have to try to find the, the satisfaction for our appetites apart from God. We create systems to get us there. Economic systems. Political systems. Social systems. Interpersonal systems. We create systems that help us get to the fullness and the flourishing of life apart from the God who gives it. That's worldliness. 
See, worldliness isn't a problem out there, right? A lot of times when people in church talk about worldliness, they talk about all the bad things of culture. They talk about going to strip clubs or going to bars or, or looking at pornography or, or, or doing all these things out there that we know are, are corrupting, right, to the purity of the soul. But, but worldliness, those are simply manifestations of an internal problem. Those are external uh, representations or fruit of a deep root that's within all of us. The root is that we try, we create systems to try to find the fullness of God apart from the God who gives that fullness. That's worldliness. Worldliness is, is us trying to find our deepest meaning in the world, in the things God created instead of the God who created them. And we're all worldly by default. We all operate in those systems. We operate in the systems that were created before us, and we create new systems within them. And, and, and here's the irony is that we'll even create religious systems to get us there, right? I'll do good, and then I'll be good. I will perform, and then I'll be accepted. I'll work hard, and then I'll be loved. None of that is humble dependence. None of that is yielding joyfully and faithfully to a God who loves us. That's us performing, earning, doing. That's worldliness. Worldliness. Worldliness is our way of to, to find the fullness of God apart from the God who does it, the systems that, that we create, right? Here's the thing. God's system, when we look at Genesis 1 and 2, when we look at, at what Christ has revealed to us, God's system for life is founded on shalom. That's the foundation, right? The shalom that he himself gives to, to us, to ourselves, to our relationship with each other and our relationship with the rest of the created order. It is founded on shalom and it's driven by love. That's God's system. Right? In, his, in his kingdom, the economy of God's kingdom is love, which is an interesting way of looking at it, I think, but, but that's true. His, the economy of his kingdom is love. What drives productivity in the kingdom of God? Love. What, what gets you out of bed working hard? Love. What motivates you to produce or to create or to love? You're not working to earn. You're working in gratitude for what you've already been given. You're not producing to prove yourself. You don't need to. You're producing out of joy because you've already been accepted and loved. You are significant and worthwhile. You're working from your rest, not for it. The economy of the kingdom of God is love. Capitalism, it works. It works. Absolutely works. You know why? Because it exploits greed. You work harder, you get more. Keep what you have and get more. Right? That's why it works. And it works phenomenally well. Until the very thing that makes it work undermines it and destroys it. When the greed that drives it becomes so strong that those who have so much can exploit those who have so little. Because in the end, that same greed that drives the economy will cause its demise and destruction. That's the same exact reason socialism won't work. Because at the end of the day, we will destroy the very things we create. We will exploit them through the abuse of power to keep what we have and get more. So here's what I want you to hear, right? This is, this is the message of, 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 of the loss of shalom with creation. What we create has beauty. The systems we create have beauty because we are created in the image of God. We will create things that have beauty, whether it's art or, or, or even our political system, right? The American system is a beautiful system. 
right? There's beauty in the things that we create, whether they're systems of, of, of economy or, or politics or, or, or business or, or, or relationships, there's beauty. But every beauty we create will bring us pain. Everything we plant will come up with thorns. Everything we build will have a critical flaw. And we know this. Simply look at human history. Every kingdom falls. Every economic system is exploited. Every political party abuses power. Every single one. That doesn't mean that that we become helpless. We obviously have the ability to be lights in darkness and to bring reform and to work for the good and the flourishing of humanity, and we should fight too. But we need to remember that every reform that humans bring will bring new and unexpected forms of injustice and abuse of power. Because everything we build has a critical flaw, and everything we plant will bring up pain and thistles. Why? Worldliness. Worldliness. Because we are continually trying to do instead of simply rest. We are trying to build in competition with God instead of simply resting on the God who builds. We, we are trying to establish. Why? Because we're no longer content being created in the image of God. We want to be like God. We want to exercise God-like power. So we distort everything we create, all the systems, with an abusive structure of power. Instead of the power of love, we're driven by the love of power. I mean, think about it, y'all. Some of you are like, I'm not hungry for power. Really? You're not? You know what power is, right? Power is the ability to get what you want when you want it. You're not driven by that? Power. Power is the ability to get what you want when you want it. That's why some of you want more money. That's why some of you want a bigger 401k because you want more security. That's why some of you want more followers on Twitter so that you can feel more significant. That's why some of you want, you want what you want when you want it. That's power. Power gets us the ability for significance, approval, security, pleasure to get what we want when we want it. Personal, economic, social, political power. The ability to get what I want when I want it. Instead of exercising our power in submission to God for the good of others, we exercise our power in competition with God for the good of self. That's why every system will fail. Because every system is built on power. And those with power will exploit that power for themselves. Us included, y'all. I'm not talking about the bad guys out there. I'm talking about humanity. We will exploit power for self-interest. With pain, you shall eat your bread. Whatever you plant will come up with thorns and thistles. We sow the seeds of our own destruction in everything we create. Because the creation always reflects its creator. And because we are worldly by nature, we will create systems that reflect this world. 
and not the God who created it. This is why we needed the creator to become part of his creation. This is why we needed to be rescued because we could not rescue ourselves. Every human that was born from Adam and Eve on repeated this same pattern over and over and over. They received the loss of shalom from their first parents. They contributed to the loss of shalom and they built systems on the loss of shalom. Since they were cut off from God, they and we were cut off from ourselves. And because we were cut off from ourselves, that results in us being cut off from each other and in competition with each other. And when I am, when I am diminished and you're enriched, I have to fight that. That means I have to create systems that destroy instead of bring life. That fight for my interests and not for yours. That build me up even if it means tearing you down. And that was a closed loop, y'all. A closed loop of human history. A closed loop of, of human experience. And it occurred over and over. Generation after generation after generation. Kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. Politician and political power after politician and political power. Over and over and over. And it would have continued forever. Or until we destroyed the, everything, including the entire planet, in our greed and exploitation. It was a closed loop nobody could break, a cycle of selfishness and the abuse of power, but God promised that he would break that cycle by breaking into the human story. He promised a hero that would come, that would, that would even though his heel was bruised, would crush the head of our enemy. He would break into to this self-destructive insanity and create a way out. God would send a son, a son of Eve, a son of Noah, a son of Abraham, a son of David. And what no one ever dreamed of is that he would also be the son of God. God become man to rescue humanity from their insane rebellion. Now think about it, y'all. God, Jesus, Scripture tells us that, 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 that Jesus preexisted His incarnation, that before He became man, he, that wasn't when He was created, He preexisted eternally as the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, which means that, that, that and, and again, three who's, one what, crazy, I know, um, but He existed in glory, eternal glory. Philippians 2 tells us that he didn't consider equality with God, something he had, something to be selfishly grasped and held on to, but instead emptied himself, not of his deity, but of his right to his glory. He existed in glory. He existed in in the kind of power we can only dream of. God had the ability with a word to create a world. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of power? Wouldn't you like to be able to speak your 401k into existence? Wouldn't you like to be able to speak your your 111-day cruise around the world into existence? Wouldn't you like to be able to to speak your yacht or your Corvette? I'm I'm revealing all of my own personal fantasies right now. Um, Wouldn't you like to be able to speak the end of systemic abusive relationships in our culture? racial prejudice, economic injustice. Wouldn't you like to be able to speak these things into existence? God had the kind of power we can only dream of. And honestly, it's the kind of power we lust after. 
It's the kind of power we all wish we had. And had we had it, we would become the worst demons that the world had ever seen because that power would in the end be used for self-centered purposes. But here's the thing, when Jesus came, he didn't come with the overwhelming glory of that power. Jesus didn't show up riding in on, 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 I don't even know what kind of things he would have because nuclear bombs are like toys to him, right? He has the ability to speak worlds into existence, right? He didn't show up with the most impressive military the world had ever seen. He didn't show up with grand displays of, of power, intimidating, intimidating might. He became a human. The creator became part of his creation. God became man and he was born in frailty. Those tiny little fingers had created worlds. And that tiny little mind had seen beauty we could only imagine. He was born as a child. And not even the child of a king. He was born to a refugee family. Outside the walls of power. Born in a stable because the people with means would not invite them in to have a bed. He was unseen, unrecognized, uncelebrated. But that does not mean he didn't come in power. He came in power, but he came in true power. He came in the power of love, the power of the kingdom of God. He was rooted in shalom and walking in the power of love. He was using and exercising and living in the most powerful might of the universe. Martin Luther said once, and I'm quoting loosely, I can destroy my enemy, but only love can turn an enemy into a friend. Only love. I can silence your voice. I can can lock up your body. I can abuse you, even kill you by exercising the power of man, but only love has the power to transform the human soul and to set it free. Only love has the power to turn an enemy into a friend. Only love has the power to bring healing to hurts wholeness to the broken, life to the dead. He lived in that power. And as he grew into his young adulthood, his power challenged the worldliness of everyone around him. They all lived within these systems of of self-promotion and self-glory, of keeping what they had and getting more. And the power brokers of his day hated him. You know why? Because they feared his power. Because he didn't pay attention to their power structures. He didn't even care about it. He's like, I'm not going to vote for your candidate. I'm not going to yield to your demands. Because what you consider powerful is a manifestation of worldly weakness. I am here to love. Which is a whole new paradigm for approaching life. He lived in that power. And the power brokers were so unsettled by what they saw and so fearful, honestly, about what it would unleash that they rose up against him and sought to silence them. They exercised their power to destroy his power. And so they conspired together, unlikely candidates, these strange coalitions of enemies that come together because they have a common enemy 
We suddenly see the religious, the political, and the philosophical world come together to kill him. And they did. Because in love, he yielded himself to their hand. He accepted their death that they might receive his redemption. He received their hatred that he might move toward them in his love. They killed him. They hung him on a cross and they killed him. But their most powerful attack became his most powerful victory. They exercised their power to destroy him and he exercised his power to redeem them. Who was more powerful? Hmm. What they meant for evil, he turned to good through the power of love. He was the willing sacrifice. He broke the cycle set in place by our first parents by living the life we should have lived and then dying the death we deserve to die. As a willing sacrifice, a hero and a substitute, taking our place in death so that when he rose again, he could invite us into his place in life. You guys remember those old school Windows computers that every once in a while would just lock up? I say old school because I've been a Mac guy for about a decade and I don't remember. I I think they're a whole lot better now. I'm not sure. But there's a reason I became a Mac guy. It's because every once in a while you had to hit Control-Alt-Delete. You guys remember that? Control-Alt-Delete. And you know what that did to your computer? It was like a heart. It was like no matter what's happening right now, it's over. Reset. The resurrection of Christ was the Control-Alt-Delete on the created universe. It was a hard reset because when he rose from the dead, he rose from the dead as man. He became man as God, but he went to the cross as man and he was raised again as man. And when he did, he created an entirely new kind of humanity, a humanity that was marked by obedience, not rebellion, a humanity that was living in the shalom of God, not in competition with God, a humanity that was driven by love, not by greed. And he redeemed an entirely new humanity to join him. Those who would simply come in the yielding of faith, those who would trust him, received from him the blessing of his resurrection. He was born into this world to save us from our worldliness. Not to save us from the world, but to redeem our way of living in it to save us from our worldliness, the closed loop of our insanity, and back to shalom. He died and rose again to redeem us from our love of power back to the power of love. So what does this look like for us as those who live between the advents, those who live in this overlapping of the ages, the age of Adam and Eve that is dying and passing away and the age of Christ, this new humanity that is already born and is coming in. What does it mean to live in dominion as vice regents with Christ, co-heirs with Christ because Christ sits upon the throne and believers in Christ, you have been crowned with glory and honor. What does it mean to live in the dominion of the kingdom now? We can imagine a little bit of what it'll mean when he comes again. At least we'll know we'll discover it, right? Because he'll pretty much be telling us what it means and we'll figure it out. But what does it mean now? Can we claim dominion over the brokenness of creation and demand it go away? 
Can we, like a good conductor, wave off a, a, a beat that is, that, is, that is incongruent and make it go away? Can, can we simply command cancer to cease to exist? Can we, can we rebuke systemic abuses of power and, and make them disappear? Can we proclaim away the damage we are doing to this world through the greedy exploitation of it? Can we create a perfect government or economic system that's undistorted by our worldliness? No. No. But that doesn't mean we're powerless. Because the answer is no, not yet. The kingdom is here. But the kingdom is yet not yet fully realized. The kingdom is inaugurated, but it is not yet fully revealed in its power. As the writer of Hebrews says, all things have been placed under his feet, even though now we do not see all things under his feet. The victory has already been won. We have not yet realized or experienced the full expression of that victory. The king is on the throne, and we are vice regents with him as followers of Christ. We are right now seated in the heavenlies. We are right now kings and priests to our God as followers of Christ. We bear the glory and honor of the manifest power of his kingdom now. So what does it mean to exercise it? What does it mean to to stand in the dignity of that glory and that honor and exercise that dominion in this broken age now? There are two mistakes that we can fall into and churches often do. So eschatology is the study of end times. So when we talk about eschatology, what we're talking about is is this whole thing about Jesus coming back and establishing his kingdom. There's there's debate about when it'll happen and how it'll happen and what it'll look like when it happens. And a lot of that's just wasted time, I think, um, because we all agree he will come back and he will establish his kingdom and it will be glorious, right? There is a challenge, though, in figuring out about how that coming kingdom influences life now. And some people have an over-realized eschatology. What that means is they want all the blessings of the kingdom manifest in the broken age now. And they, they pretend that they can declare all the brokenness just to go away. And, and if it doesn't happen, they generally blame people and say, well, you just don't have enough faith. Right? If you had enough faith, you could declare your cancer to go away. If you had enough faith, you could declare that the, the dead should be raised um, back to life. If you just had enough faith, that's an over-realized eschatology. We're expecting all the blessings of the coming kingdom to be manifest in the broken world now, and we're not promised that. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. I've delivered you from this world, but in this world, you will have trouble. In this age, right, world, age, system, right now, you will experience the brokenness of the loss of shalom. But some of us are living with an underrealized eschatology. We don't expect any of the blessings of the coming kingdom to be established now, right? You'll hear people say things like, "Why, why would I polish the brass on a sinking ship? Why do anything good for the world now? Because it's all going to pass away. I'm just waiting for Jesus to come back, so I'm just going to hunker down back over here in my little cave. I'll be cool, wake me up when he gets here. I'm going to hibernate. That's an underrealized expectation. We, we, we eschatology. We don't expect any of the glory of the coming of the kingdom to be established. Now we need to live in a gospel-driven eschatology that recognizes that the kingdom is here even though it is not yet fully manifest. And that we are called to exercise dominion as those that have been redeemed and are now vice-regents, crowned with glory and honor, because He is crowned with glory and honor. 
Jesus came to reverse the effects of Genesis 3, right? Let me remind you of that. Genesis 3, Jesus came to reverse the effects of the great rebellion. Jesus came to restore shalom with God, with ourselves, with each other, and with the world. The order here is important. And I would like to throw out to you this morning as we wrap up this idea. That we exercise dominion as we work with our king in the reversing of the loss of shalom. That we exercise dominion when we work with the king over the kingdom in the reversing of the effects of the loss of shalom. Everything went wrong because we lost shalom with God. And because we lost shalom with God, we lost shalom with ourselves. And because we lost shalom with ourselves, we couldn't bring shalom into relationship with each other. And as a result, we ultimately created systems of doing life apart from God. We lost shalom with creation. In the kingdom of God, everything will be set right. But in the overlap of the ages, that's already taking place and we're invited into it in the reverse order. So very practically, the first and most important thing you need to do to exercise dominion as a vice regent is push into your shalom with God. That's where it begins. That's an exercising of dominion because it's bringing yourself back into subjection to the king. It is once again pushing yourself back to a, a place where you're responsive to the love of God instead of competing with the power of God. You're exercising dominion over yourself. And you're experiencing the overflow and the outpouring. It's foundational. We were created to live in humble, dependent responsiveness to the love of God. Not in competition with the power of God. And, and He is continually pouring out that love and we're continually receiving that love. But we don't always acknowledge that love. We don't always respond to that love. We are designed to respond as He initiates. He loves so we are humbled. He gives so we are joyful. He provides so we grow generous in His grace. This is absolutely foundational. We have to begin here, y'all. You cannot build the kingdom of God if you don't start here. We have to start here or we are building in our worldliness. This is absolutely foundational. You wonder why so many Christians look so little like Christ? You want to know why there's so much infighting in the Christian world? It's because we're fighting over power. Because of the love of power, not the power of love. It's because we're fighting for the wrong system in the wrong way. We're not exercising the dominion that comes with the vice regency of the kingdom of God. We are fighting for power in the kingdom of man. We need to begin by bringing ourselves into humble responsiveness every single day, every single minute, humble responsiveness to the outpouring of the love of God. And then out of that, we can grow in shalom with ourselves. But it has to begin with the shalom of God. We have to push into the shalom that Christ has won for us with God, and that allows us to push in to the peace that, that we have in ourselves, right? Because, because we have peace with God because of the death and resurrection of Christ, we can experience the peace of God. That allows us to disarm the shame, the fear, and the anger that grip our souls and drive our behavior. That take hold of our desires and the dark motivations that work under the surface to control our desires and lead us to the wrong goals. We need to push into the love of God so that we can be freed back into the humble confidence of the freedom of loving ourselves. 
not worshiping ourselves, but loving ourselves. With nothing to, to prove and, and nothing to pretend. I, I'm humbly confident because I'm accepted and loved by God. I, I have no need to create a false self because my true self is actually treasured by God Himself. That allows me to be at peace with myself, comfortable in my own skin. No need to pretend, no need to perform. I can bring myself vulnerably and honestly to God. Nothing to prove, nothing to hide, nothing to earn which allows me to bring myself honestly to myself, living as those whose greatest debt has been paid, our greatest problem has been solved, our greatest blessing has been given. That allows us then to move out and build shalom with each other. Notice it has to go sequentially. It is only once we, have, once we are pushing into the shalom of God with ourselves that we can bring that to others. Otherwise, we will be using them instead of loving them. We'll be trying to fix them instead of bring grace to them. We can only really have healthy relationships when we bring a healthy self to those relationships. If we are terrified of conflict because of our shame, if we are fragile uh, and and can't take criticism because of our our fear, if, if, if we are easily provoked because of our anger, we bring that and we destroy the shalom that God has called us to share with others. When we are rooted in grace because we're experiencing the shalom of God and freed into the humble confidence of of knowing we're loved by God, that allows us to bring grace into our relationship with the brokenness of others. Extending them grace in the same way God has extended grace to us. Loving and forgiving in the same way God has loved and forgiven us. Loving people instead of using people. Even to the point, Jesus says, of being able to love our enemies. Even to the point of loving our enemies. Which then leads to our ability to have shalom with the rest of creation. What does it look like for us to exercise dominion in this broken world, in this kingdom, here and now, in this not yet but already here but not yet tension of the kingdom? I think we best do it by living out the three things I just said, honestly, because we are signs of the kingdom when we live in the power of the kingdom. We are a declaration to the world that there is a better way, a better king, and a better power. When we walk in freedom, we invite others into that freedom. In a world broken by sin, when we push into grace to become more like Jesus, to be transformed into his image, to be set free, we become a witness of Jesus. Not just because we're telling people Merry Christmas, not just because we're telling people God is this great person, but because they can actually see the power of the kingdom of God manifest in a humble, broken, grace-filled heart. But it's more than simply being a witness of the kingdom. It is a manifest presence of the kingdom. When we bring that grace into this world, God works through that grace not only to change us, but to change the world around us. Do you want to be a significant part of solving the problems that plague our country? This is how you get there. Not by winning arguments. But by being won by the love of God, by being humbled by the grace of God, by being set free by the power of God, then you become not only a witness of the kingdom, but a manifestation of the kingdom. In your home, in your job, in your neighborhood, in your country.
At the end of Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are locked out of the garden. The, the angel is set with the flaming sword to block the way in. Jesus absorbed both the flame and the sword. And we see at the end of the story, when we look to the book of Revelation, he invites us back and the tree of life, the tree of life of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 is once again presented to us in the final chapters of the Bible in the New Jerusalem. He takes us from a garden and he puts us in a city. It's still the manifestation of culture. It is still humans imaging God. But he invites us back and in the New Jerusalem there is a king, a man sitting on the throne. And we will live in his glory, set free by his power. And the end of his righteous reign, we, we will never know because it will be eternal. All right, I'm going to close this word of prayer. And uh, we'll move into a time of reflection. We're going to share communion in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. I, I, those seem like such weak words when the gift is so great. We look back and celebrate not just the birth of a baby, but the emergence of a hero, an expression of sacrificial love that invites us back to sanity. Lord, we're very, very grateful as we look back and we are very, very unsettled. We are filled with longing as we look forward. There are so many broken things in our families. There are so many broken things in our hearts. There are so many broken things in our marriages. There are so many broken things in our culture. And we know, Lord, that we are waiting. That you're not waiting for us to fix ourselves for you. We are waiting for you. During this age, as you patiently call people to repentance, as you patiently call people to your kingdom, we are waiting. Because we know one day you will return. The Lamb who has been slain since the foundation of the world will return as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And your kingdom will be established. We long for that day. And we pray, Lord, that we might be witnesses and manifestations of the beauty of that kingdom even now. That we might be transformed by the power of love and that we might become a source of shalom to our families, to our neighborhoods, and to our culture. You guys take a few minutes, pray. We'll share communion in a moment.